You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. So you know, along with being an award-winning podcaster, I'm also the Chief Disability Officer at Bumpin', right? Where we are designing the world's first disability-driven sex toy. Well, guess what? We have an awesome deal that I want to tell you all about right now. For all you deliciously disabled lovers out there, we've reduced the price of our world's first disability-driven sex tech, the Bump and Joystick, by 20%. That means you can pre-order this amazing device that's going to change the world around sex tech and disability for only $1.99. How awesome is that? That's really, really cool. And this is a great gift. Also, if you're non-disabled and you want to do something for the disabled community, this is an awesome thing to do for us on Valentine's Day and show that our sexuality matters. If you want to pre-order one for that hot disabled person in your life, this is a great opportunity to do that because we are only doing small runs of the toy and we want you to get your hands on it first. So head over to getbumpin.com and take advantage of our 20% off sale right now. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonapussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at Clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone willy or clone pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you, and they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone willy or clone a pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember, this is a deal that cannot be cloned. Hey Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I'm here with my friend Kristen, who's a friend of the show, and you've heard her on the show before, but did you know she's also a counselor in training with a physical disability? Hey, Kristen, can you tell us more about that? Hey, Andrew, I sure can. Um, I've been working as a peer support counselor for about seven years now, and I'm now expanding my services, offering trauma-informed accessible support to community members. Uh, Some of the things I cover are anxiety, depression, grief, relationship issues, and all from a disability-centered standpoint. I I love that so much, and I love that we're finally talking about offering disability-centered counseling 
two other disabled folks because it's so rarely in the field and I'm so glad you're doing that. And so I wonder, Kristen, are you offering these services to, oh, I don't know, listeners of a particular podcast on this particular ad right now? Absolutely, Andrew. I'm offering accessible services to listeners of this podcast and anyone else who's interested in contacting me. And she's also doing that. Yeah. Yeah. You're also doing it whether you're disabled or not, which is totally great. So this service is for everyone. And I think what makes it unique is that even if you're not disabled, you can learn things from a disability centered lens. And I think that's really important. Yes. So Kristen, this is awesome. And this is so great. Can you tell us what your hours are like? Sure. Right now I'm able to offer pretty flexible availability to meet the needs of everyone. I know that um, sometimes having physical disabilities and just life being busy in general, it's hard to uh, make time for things like counseling, but I think it's really important. So um, when we touch base, hopefully we can work out a time that works for you. That's awesome. Now, you know, you and I know from trying to get traditional counseling services in, in the past, how often financially inaccessible they are. So what's the cost of all this great service? Yeah, because I believe that uh, counseling should be accessible and affordable for everyone. My fee right now is a sliding scale starting at $20 per hour. That is so, that's, that is, that's like basically cheaper than anything you can buy on Amazon right now. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty awesome. So I want everybody to know how they can get a hold of you and how they can, how they can, access your services because what you're offering is so important. How do people get a hold of you? So right now, the best way to reach me is through email. It's kristen.williams10 at gmail.com. That's kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N, dot williams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S, one zero at gmail.com. Amazing. I'll make sure also, Kristen, that all of this is in the show notes for the episode today. Thank you so Thanks. much for just- Thank you so much for being here and telling us what you do. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends, and thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your delectably delicious disabled daddy, and I'm here to remind you that disabled people are hot. So let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get this hot episode started. On the program today, friends, I sit down with someone that I just had an amazing conversation with that I cannot wait to share with you. I sit down with my friend Mugabe Bianchia, who I talked to last September about his experiences 
being a three-time stroke survivor, what it's like to be black and disabled in Uganda, his experiences navigating the medical system and the the ableism and racism that he experienced being a black disabled person in Uganda, and the differences he experienced going from Uganda to the States to Bangladesh to different parts of the world and seeing how different the medical system was there. We talk about a lot of things here, internalized ableism, racism, so many things, but as part of my effort to uplift black voices this Black History Month, I felt that this interview with Mugabe Bianchia was really important and really valuable to listen to, and I am just really excited to bring it to you. So I'm not going to do a huge preamble today because I want you to jump right into this episode and have a really good listen because a lot of the stuff that he says is salient, important, and necessary to hear. This is, I think, a necessary listen. I'm really excited to introduce you to Poet and my friend Mugabe Bianchia right now on Disability After Dark. Mugabe, hello! Hello, Andrew. Pleasure I am to finally be on. It is so nice to finally have you on the show. We, You are the longest, most patient guest in the history of the show because you and I have been planning to do this for what feels like almost two years. We're very long time. <laughs> and what I love about our back and forth is that we both have said to each other, look, if disability comes up, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. And we have mm-hmm. over the last like year and a half been like, eventually we'll do it. We'll get there. We'll, we'll be, don't worry. So like, I'm so happy it's finally happening today and we're finally sitting down. It's been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for being accommodating because a lot of um, interviewers who I have potentially wanted to um, get on to talk to um, drop me after, you know, the third or fourth. Um, I'm sorry, I can't make it. Disability stuff came up. Um, so thank you for walking the walk. You know. Well, that's it's, no, that's, sorry, ironic. That, uh, that's ironic. It, I'm that's ironic because I'm definitely. I'm not walking it. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I'm sorry. I, no, no, no. Don't, I'm, I'm totally kidding. I'm not walking any walk. But that's. But I get it, and I like that we've we literally have, talking the talk. Yeah, we've canceled each other like nine or ten times now, and so we're finally sitting down it's it's quite uh-huh. exciting um but i am so excited to talk to you because of your experience in a different country being disabled and i remember when you uh-huh. sent me your initial form i was like this is important we need to talk about this because uh-huh. you're you well tell, tell me a little bit about about you and who you are and what you do and where you live and then we'll get into it all right, sounds good. Um, my name is Mugabe Bienkia. Um, I currently living in uh, Kampala, Uganda. Uh, this is where um, um, I lived, um, I guess, um, from 13 to 18. Um, and then I went off to North America for a couple of years and then moved back four years ago in 2017. Um, and um, yeah, it's just been, um, I, I moved around a lot growing up, um, because of my dad's job. Um, he had a job that like assigned, a, um, him and his family to a different country every couple of years. And so, um, I grew up very much moving around. It's uncomfortable moving around. 
Um, and so it's nice being back here because um, um, I'm with my family, my mom. Um, it's nice being around them. And uh, but like I'm just still like trying to get things uh, going again because the pandemic has altered a lot of plans. Uh, yeah, I'm a writer. Um, that's what I primarily do because um, my disabilities don't allow me to do much um, in terms of like I'm incredibly limited capacity wise. Um, so writing is something that, that I can do on my own time and I've been successful at so I'm grateful for that. Awesome. Um, to tell me a little bit more about because you, you mentioned disability. You mentioned that you have disabilities. Can you Can you just tell me what your disabilities are and how they play a role in your day to day life? Sure thing. So I am a three time stroke survivor. Um, and um, each stroke sort of like um, left me with like different long term um, disabilities and chronic illnesses that I had to like figure out how to manage. Um, first one happened when I was nine years old. Um, and it paralyzed the right side of my body completely. And um, I um, had a lot of migraines, sensitivity to light. Um, and so um, I went through a lot of intensive physical therapy, which helped me get to um, a more manageable place. Um, and then I had my second and third strokes in 2014. I was 22 at the time. And those ones led to like a constant like chronic pain condition um that's and then like chronic headache to constant headache um chronic fatigue um seizures um and um so after those um life had to change a lot um and i'm still trying to figure out my best ways to manage yeah tell me, like that that's a lot to like take in and I, I've spoken to other stroke survivors on the show and I've spoken to other like people who have survived stroke and, and talking about like how things have changed is really it's traumatic because like to go mm-hmm. from not having seizures and not having migraines and not having like all this stuff to going to being disabled like that is really a lot how how are you managing that um this time around like I'm managing it better. Um, I feel like um, it's up and down, it's up and down, it's difficult. Like every day is difficult. Um, most days I can't do much, which is frustrating because I, w- like when I had like the peak of like my um, um, like ability, um, I was a workaholic and I was like running around um, doing like a million things at the same time and I love that um and so being so severely limited by my body is very frustrating um but I'm also very good at managing uh, my capacity and pacing and making sure that I um work within my limits um because I've had a lot of experience and that I'm grateful for um because I've been dealing with some form of a disability since I was nine you know and so that's the majority of my life. I'm 29 right now. That's 20 years. Um, and so I remember what it was like to be um, 
able-bodied uh, when I was a kid, um, but that's not the majority of life for me. Um, and so I feel like going through it so young um, and going through it at a time when so much was beyond my control a lot more than life is as an adult, because as an adult, you are a lot more in control of um, your life than you are as a child yeah. um, in your parents' houses. Um, and even though I'm, I'm back with my mom right now, like we have a different relationship, um, you know, now that I'm 29 versus when I was nine and you know, I'd be dragged along to every single um, treatment. Doctors, and alternative, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now I can say no and I don't have to go. <laughs> and so that's amazing. What was it like your experience of like doctors from the time, like during each stroke, what was your experience of like, the medical system as a black person. I think it's important that we talk about that also, like as a black disabled person, how do, how do they treat you? So when my first stroke I had when I was nine and at that time my family was living in Bangladesh. Um, and so um, that was like very different. So that's like, you know, like majority um, of the people who live there are from Bangladesh and so, we were like one of like five black families that like we'd seen when we were on, when, when we were like out and about, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so like, there was a lot of like ignorance and a lot of racism. Um, a lot of just assuming that we were um, related to Brian Lara, who's a really famous cricket player uh, because he was the only black point of reference um, that a lot of people had. And that led to us getting a lot of the, like, special treatment because everyone was like, oh, my God, it's Brian Lara's son. I mean, that's <laughs> cool. I mean, I would take that. Like, look, if I had, if that's what I had to do to get good medical care, I would say, sure, yeah, we're related. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Taking advantage of that was great. Um, but, like, the healthcare system there was not equipped for a case as complicated as mine. Because when I had my first stroke, like, I was, like, otherwise... You know, like people don't have strokes at nine years old, you know, like, yeah, that's like an, on its own, like a medical mystery. And they didn't understand what was going on because they were like, like all the like things that lead to stroke, um, like are like being a heavy smoker, you know, which like I was nine, <laughs> you know, like, and they were like being 65 plus, all, all, all these like factors that they listed off and like I didn't fit in any of them. Um, so they didn't understand it. And they initially misdiagnosed me with the dehydration. They just like um, pumped me full of like um, Fluid. fluids and sent me on my way, yeah. Um, and they were just like, oh, it's cause he was running around and playing with his friends. Um, lazy diagnosis, but yeah, got like a lot of those. the laziest. Like wow, wow. Mm-hmm. And so um, we ended up having to like um, go because um, um, I was like um, slowly like getting more and more paralysis of the right side of my body. Yeah, um, and. Um, it was very strange because it happened very, very gradually. It wasn't like instant. It was like over the course of two weeks um, where I just gained less and less um, mobility and more and more stiffness of my right hand and my right leg and even like the right side of my face, like the entire right side of my body. Um, and I remember being in class and like 
one of my claims to fame was I was like number one in uh, handwriting. Um, and I like, we did like handwriting quiz and like I wasn't number one anymore. And my teacher was like, what happened? I was like, I don't know. Like my uh, hand just can't, my hand can't move in the ways that like I want it to. Like I didn't understand it. Cause like I was trying to trace those lines that like you do for like your cursive quiz. And yeah. my hand couldn't, couldn't do it. It couldn't keep up. Um, and then eventually after a couple of weeks, um, as the paralysis progressed, my parents noticed and um, they decided to take me for some alternative op- opinions. And we bounced around to quite a few different doctors until we finally got the stroke diagnosis. It took like a month um, wow. after the initial stroke. And then the doctors like rushed me on blood thinners because they were like, um, uh, it's only um, gonna get worse. Um, without them um and so then i like actually had a treatment plan and um started um like working on um rehabilitation um but it took a while um and that was i mean i think race played a factor i think age played a factor um i think the fact that we're foreign played a factor you know yeah um so like what then, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I can't imagine being nine and, and going through all that and having like such a dismissive. Like, how could you? How could someone say, "Oh yeah, playing with your friends gives you a stroke"? Like, what? That's not, <laughs> like how is that? How are oh, you actually uh, gonna doctor that and say like that's what I believe is doctor? Like, what? No. Um, um, the thing is, for them, I don't think stroke was even in their mind because like. It took so long because nobody could fathom like yeah this this nine-year-old kid who had like zero prior um um like brain damage or like you know like no major concussion no like nothing to like point them towards that um yeah and so they didn't understand it and they were just looking for something that fit had to be that had to be exhausting for you and your family like that just had to be exhausting also for you to have to go through like like you know you're saying that that after the initial stroke the paralysis got worse um so i can imagine like on an emotional level for you that could have been easy to, to navigate definitely it was difficult um one thing that i'm grateful for is that my parents took most of the brunt in terms of like because i was nine you know like research taking me to this doctor taking me to that doctor like figuring out all that stuff um and like they took me out of school um and like my priority was just like to rest and so I was like as much as I was going through it I was glad that I had like people like um advocating for me and um really behind me um because a lot of the doctors were telling them really ridiculous things um I mean I had this one doctor um tell my both my parents and me that as a result of the stroke um my IQ had been affected and I'd never be able to read anything longer than um like a couple paragraphs ever again and like I looked at him and in and in my mind I'm like I literally just read Harry Potter yesterday you know (laughs) (laughs) like where are you even getting this from like 
I is mean, it just that you see a child having a stroke, can you just immediately like, and like, I don't know, like, like IQ, I just see as a very racist practice as well. And yeah. 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 I mean, in the way, in the way, a lot of that. was it a white doctor telling your family this? Mm. No, they were Thai, but there's a lot of like still, yeah, yeah. anti-black racism throughout Asia as well. Yeah, and I mean, I don't, know, I don't like thinking about his statement for you as Black Todd to see your IQs, but I did just feel super racist. Like, wow, mm-hmm. wow, because um, I was keeping up with school. Like, like I was still going to school from home. Like, the school would like send like those like little packets. Um, with my siblings because my siblings are all going to school so they just send them home with them and i do the work and i was doing well you know like and like, you just read so, harry potter so like what do you mean your IQ <laughs> went down? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's ironic what he said because like I, I revisit that now and like now like it's like next to impossible for me to read more than a couple paragraphs um at a time uh, but like that isn't an IQ thing. It's like a processing thing. No, huh? it's a processing, and it's a it's a it's a result of the second and third stroke, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, uh, and all the seizures because those damage our body a lot, put my body through a lot. What has that experience of having seizures been like for you? Like I, I think we we think of them, we see them on, we see them portrayed on TV, and we know people who, people will say I had a seizure, but we don't really get to understand like what the the impact of having a seizure is like can you talk about that a little bit more sure thing um seizures are very very difficult on my body um because my seizures are very different from um the stereotypical seizures that uh people most people know of because um and like, there are also like a bunch of different, like over 20 different types of seizures. Um, just a lot of them aren't as well known as um, the main like- As like grand mal like, and Blacking like... out. And, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't black out during mine, um, which I'm grateful for. Because um, I know a lot of people who um, do have seizures that they black out for. And that's always, you know, a huge concern of like, it can strike at any time and um, you can just be out. So you always have to be alert. Um, and I can feel mine coming on, which I'm grateful for. So I can like excuse myself. Um, and I get a sense of like, it's coming on. And then like, I can like sort of suppress it until I get to like the bed and like, you know, can like just go through it. Um, but um, they vary. Um, they're very, very frequent. Um, less frequent of less, but that's because uh, the downgraded to just like my body just spasming all the time instead of going through a seizure, which is honestly more annoying. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> it's just like twenty four seven, like just random muscles just all through my body just going off, just firing all the time. Fun. I've Ooh. been there. I've been there. I have CP. Yeah. So not, <laughs> not at all the same, but similar in in scope of like, oh, you're gonna have a spasm now. Like, yep, I've been there. And like one of the things like I appreciated actual... about our emails back and forth was like mm-hmm. you would say like oh having a spasm and I would just kind of nod my head and be like yep I've been there I know what that's like and so like <laughs> it was nice to fully understand what you were saying yeah because I mean it completely shuts down my ability to function like I can't like hold a conversation with someone you know I can't like even like think through 
um, something in order to like um, do that task. Um, most days I can't type, uh, it's rough. Um, the actual seizures though, those ones, even though they've like converted into like the 24 hour spasm and aren't as frequent, um, they were very intense because um, it was like anywhere from 30 minutes to six hours of my body just like jerking and uh, spasming and like my entire body just like heaving um, over and over again as my pain levels skyrocketed, um, my fatigue skyrocketed and I couldn't do anything. I can't speak most of the time. Sometimes I can, um, but and then it's exhausting afterwards. I usually just crash because I'm exhausted. Um, and then the next couple of days to a couple of weeks afterwards, I have like the lingering, you know, like fatigue. Um, well, weeks afterwards too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's weeks. Like it, like now it just never lets up, which is frustrating. Because um, like one thing that I, as, as, as annoying as they were, one thing that I liked about the seizures is that it was like, I would do activity, do activity, do activity. It would build up, build up, build up. And then it would get to the point where the seizure would break out. And then I'd be rough for a couple of days or weeks. But then afterwards, I felt like it was out of my system. and I was good to build up, build up, build up again. Yeah. Um, and now I can't even do that build up. Um, and so I appreciated that like sort of predictability and higher level of ability. Um, because um, my ability has been significantly um, dampened of late. Um, but yes, seizures are rough um, and they make life very difficult. And, you know, like social situations where like I feel seizures coming on and I have to leave or something like that. Um, people getting really awkward around seeing, having me have a seizure, you know, uh, people getting uncomfortable, people making it about them people crying you know it's just it's a lot <laughs> people it's not about you it's about Mugabe having the seizure don't cry in front of him when he's seizing mm-hmm. help him through it so he doesn't freaking die thanks that's all that's all he really wants thank you for that I'm just gonna <laughs> put it out there don't make his seizure about you thank you everyone don't do that um but tell me more about your experience of like because it sounds like with with these strokes you've kind of become more and more disabled with each one. How does that feel mm-hmm. for you being becoming more disabled, both as just as, as a person, but also as like a black person? What is like the culture of disability over there? Um, culture of disability over here in Uganda. Um, th- there are honestly quite a few um, organizations that do like, like nonprofits that like do um, d- like primarily disability related work. Yeah. Um, and that's one thing that like I appreciate is like, like I remember like, like growing up on the ride home to school every day, passing like two to three, you know, um, and like seeing them like clearly visible. Um, it's not an accessible country at all, which is terrible. So you mean um, I can't come and hang out with you there? Or I shouldn't like book a flight to like come and chill out? I mean, I would love to host you, 
um, it would be very difficult to find places um, that are accessible for you to get around. Um, yeah. We'd have to stick to certain areas uh, because like, like I've seen like wheelchair users um, like board like um, the public transport that we call Matatu, um, but like it's a struggle um, uh, because like it's like a little mini bus, you know? And so like you have to like um, either like lift yourself up, which I've seen done or like get assistance, but like it's very much a like throw the wheelchair on top of the mini bus and then just speed off and like your wheelchair can literally zing off. Oh, no. <laughs> I've seen wheelchairs fall off the top of one and like the person is screwed, you know? And so um, like it's ideal if like you have like your own means of transportation. Which I'm sure um, is very costly over there. Not yeah. accessible. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it sounds like the average person, the average wheelchair user needs like their own vehicle and so it sounds like the the state needs funding to make to make like because in toronto or in, in like the u.s they have like the ada buses and they have like buses that you can just uh-huh. get on and they will come to you or paratransit that will come to you but i can't uh-huh. imagine the the paratransit driver being like okay i'm gonna tie your wheelchair to the top of the bus and i'm gonna hope that it stays on good luck <laughs> like good luck like i don't know that's so, so crazy <laughs> Exactly. And so a lot of disabled people are unfortunately stuck at home, um, you know, uh, because of that, or like just incredibly like limited um, mobility wise. Um, And like, there's also stigma, you know, there's a large stigma um, around certain disabilities more than others. Um, Like seizures are like traditionally known to be demonic. Oh, great. So what you're saying is when every time you have a seizure, everyone thinks you're a demon? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, the, the, honestly they most the, most of them think that i've been cursed that somebody oh great cursed me. great yeah. that's so great <laughs> for you uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah um and so like it really like and like mental illnesses are like heavily heavily stigmatized and like i know of like several like people who um are dealing with different mental illnesses who are like you know like just like locked up at home by their family and like not you know allowed to engage uh, yeah. with the world um and that's terrible um and so we got a long way to go um there are people fighting the good fight um but we got a long way to go. And unfortunately, as you're aware of, like we're at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to like social hierarchy and like, you know, what gets allocated. Um, and so um, nobody is in a rush. <laughs> that's horrible. I mean, I mean, that sucks because like they should be in a rush because the more and more we're going to become disabled in the world and, and like because of the poverty those countries those people in those countries face like they're gonna have no resources to safely become disabled and navigate disability without having any resources like that's horrible exactly how do you think we yeah. can like how what do you what do you think needs to be done for people living in uganda or, or other countries like that who have disabilities like how do we how do how do we start this conversation in these 
how do we take it out of like a Western idea and turn and turn disability into something that is a global discussion? Um, I think, I mean, I think like these conversations should be had like, you know, like at all levels um, in like all countries. Uh, because I've lived in a lot of different countries um, because of my dad's work and I've like observed like and I've been disabled in the majority of them um, and I've observed the different ways um, like that disabled people um, move through these various countries and there are a lot of like common problems um, but there's also a lot of um, people like coming in from the Western world and like imposing their own like, oh, like we know what to do, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, with like zero, you know, like credentials or like actual. Or zero understanding of what the cultural, like the cultural what is the word I want, you know, of what the culture is. So they just come in and, and apply a white disability standard to like this population that is not at all that. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I think like more of these conversations are necessary on definitely local levels. Um, I think government funding would be amazing, um, but highly unlikely. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's difficult because like a lot of these are like systemic issues, you know? And so like, yeah. I feel like systemic changes are needed and it's just like, how do we get there? I don't even know. Well, we start by not letting wheelchair users put their bus on top of a minivan and hope that it flies off. <laughs> let's, let's, let's start there. Yes. Let's start there, definitely. Um, let's, um, but I mean, I agree with you. Like, I think disability is such a, the way it's talked about is very Western, very white. Um, mm-hmm. There's an expectation that if you're disabled, you'll find a way to get funding. You'll find a way to get resources. And I think like... Yeah, because like disability benefits do not exist here and do not exist in the majority of the world. Oh yeah, like, tell me more about that. Tell me more about like... Because, like, people always talk about benefits and, like, I mean, like, from what I've heard from um, my friends who are on benefits or applying or it, it's a ridiculous process from what I've heard. It takes forever. There's, like, a million and one proofs that they need. Um, and it reminds me a lot of the hurdles I jumped through just to, like, extend my insurance. Um, but, like, in a lot of the, the majority of places, honestly, in the world, disability benefits do not exist. In the majority of countries I've lived in, disability benefits were not ever a thing. They're not a thing here. Um, so that option is not even there. Um, and so as a disabled person who's not working, the only thing you have is either you get lucky um, to be like sponsored by some organization or you rely on your family. And if you don't have a supportive family, you're screwed. Yeah. So... Because you so live with your no safety net government wise. Yeah. Because you live with your mom, I'm guessing you're 
um not so screwed or you're like <laughs> you yeah <laughs> exactly thank god for my mom um i live with my mom and i lived with my brother on and off uh for the past couple of years um and before that i lived with my sister right after the strokes two and three um because i was in grad school at, at that time and so i had to drop out and try to figure out the health thing i moved into my sister but like at each point i've been dependent on some family member um since I became disabled when I was nine, you know, I was dependent on my, like, I couldn't walk when the right side of my body was paralyzed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, became a wheelchair user for a bit. Um, and that completely, like, shifted the dynamic. Um, and I was unable to um, bathe myself as well for a while um, because I used to be right handed, then I had to learn how to do everything with my left hand because. Um, my right hand couldn't do anything um, in terms of fine motor control anymore. Yeah, um, it was just like clamped up and paralyzed. Um, and so, like, but like all of that, I did through the support of my family. You know, um, all those doctors I saw was thanks to my dad's company having an amazingly generous health insurance package. You know, um, and like I constantly like lead with the fact that like the only reason I'm alive is because I'm incredibly privileged because if I wasn't I would have died after that first stroke if my mom and dad hadn't been able to take me to all those different doctors yeah to figure out the situation um because they told me oh you're not gonna you're not gonna make it to your 10th birthday and when I did uh, they were like, oh, we don't understand you. And I was like, okay. And then when I had my second stroke, they told me, you're not going to make it to see your 24th birthday. And then when I did, they're like, oh, okay, we don't understand you. They literally would like, say, you, <laughs> you're not going to make it to this birthday? Yeah, they're like, I had a life expectancy. And so, like, for me, like, I'm always grateful that, like, A, I'm still here. And B, that, like, I have the privilege necessary to survive. Because without this privilege of having a family who supports me, um, I would not be alive. That's, a, that's, I mean, there's so much to take in and what you just said, like, wow, the fact that the doctors would tell your family and you that you're not going to live 10. Wow. And then you're not gonna live 24. And then like, Oh, and, and, you know, and my poor parents had to go through that twice. Cause my older brother had asthma and a lot of, um, respiratory issues, um, throughout his childhood and early teenage and they constantly told my family, my, my parents, that he wasn't going to make it to see 10. He wasn't going to make it to see 11. <laughs> he wasn't going to make it to see 12. Doctors, <laughs> stop saying that. It's horrible. That's horrible. Don't say that ever. It's horrible. Um, what do you wish the medical care system in Uganda was like? In Uganda? Yeah. Or I mean, where you are now or... or where you grew up um i'm in uganda right now and i I grew up here for quite some time five years that was my whole high school last year middle school um i wish the healthcare system was i mean i i wish they like treated their doctors better so that the doctors would then treat us better you know because like I feel like a a large reason that like um a lot of like the doctors I've dealt with are like 
dismissive and and this is more of a worldwide thing. Like I think the way that the medical school system trains doctors, first of all, is terrible. Yeah, it's um, horrible. Yeah. Um, and I think the way that they work after school is also terrible because like these are people who are in charge of patients like lives and like they can't even like make a decision because they're working 80 hour weeks you know like um exhausted um don't even know what they're saying half the time i've been misdiagnosed and given like terrible things so many times because like doctors didn't know what they're doing but like when i went up to the mail clinic i remember having such a different experience because their doctors work nine to five which is the first time that i've ever experienced that yeah. And as a result, the doctors were so much more patient. Like, I mean, they sat down with me for like two to three hours going all over my medical records, which had never happened in my life. Wow. Wow. Um, That's not happened in my life either. Wow. Yeah, I know. Because it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Like, like going there was like such an eye opening like experience for me of like what healthcare could be, but it's not. Like what happens when like you actually like give doctors a work-life balance and they're able to spend time with their kids and they're able to sleep <laughs> it was a complete night and day yeah yeah um, and so like, i think the healthcare system worldwide should um, treat the doctors better so that they can treat us better but also i think we should be included um in the healthcare system because there's a massive missing voice of disabled people um in the healthcare system and that's why we slipped through so many cracks so many times because i saw so many times like me just going through things where like it's like i wouldn't have had to go through this for so long if the person on the other side was disabled or if yeah. they were black like i remember when i first developed my chronic pain condition i was dealing with a lot um because i developed the pain seizures fatigue all at the same time um because of the third strokes and going to a bunch of different doctors trying to explain to them what was going on and what I needed help with and they didn't prescribe me anything stronger than like a Panadol or Tylenol um, oh no prescribed it under different names and the first doctor I got will willing to prescribe me um something um stronger was a black doctor and he looked at me he shook his head and he said these white doctors think we're all um drug seekers I mean, he's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, he's not. But like, why did it take me eight months of hopping around from doctor to doctor to doctor, you know? Yeah. Um, like, if there were more marginalized people in general, like, there should be more trans people in healthcare because trans people have a ton of healthcare issues. So many healthcare if, issues. Like, wow. Yeah. If there are more trans people on the other side, like, I think that would help. Was it... what? totally off top well sort of not a well yes and no but i wonder what was it like for you to like talk about disability to a black doctor was it a different experience than talking to a white doctor about stroke and disability um in regards to stroke and disability i found the black doctor was a lot more open to consider all alternatives instead of cutting me off because every white doctor who I saw was like, oh, yeah, 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 we see. And then I'd walk out with a different name for a Panadol. 
Um, but then the black doctor, he sat me down. <laughs> he walked me through my options. And then he, when one thing didn't work, he was like, all right, try this. Try this combo. Try this. Like, he, he was more open. So yeah. like, work with me, which is all I wanted. Um, but I never received from the white doctors. White doctors are the worst. I'm going to say it right now. Uh-huh. White doctors are the worst. Say that again. I um, had one white neurologist tell me that um, I should try being less angry about racism and then uh, uh, my pain would go away. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? What do you say? Oh, no. Like, I, I, I honestly, I ended up injuring myself that day because I was just so angry. Of that course. I just, like, went for a very, very, very long um, walk through the cemetery because um, I was just going through it. Um, and, like, I ended up overextending myself and, like, messing up one of the muscles in my leg, which has never really recovered since. Uh, but I was just livid, um, and I never went to see him again. Because of course, how do you be okay? How, and how dare he say something so flippant to you? Like, no, like, fuck off. Well, this is someone who, like, my sister was literally doing overtime and working like her butt off um, to be able to afford these appointments because they're expensive, and insurance didn't cover them. And wow. Maybe you should be, I mean, we found the tagline for the show. Like, that's what the, I think we found the title for this episode is that. Because, like, wow, that's, <laughs> wow. Um, wow. 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 Uh, ridiculous. One of the things you put in your questionnaire that I'd love to talk to you about is, what does your internalized ableism sound like? What, like, what is, how does, what does that feel like for you? What does it sound like? And how do you cope with that? I mean, I honestly struggle with internalized ableism daily as much as I try my best to fight against it. It always rears its ugly head um, because I like just feel like like when my body literally doesn't allow me to do something, it's one of the most frustrating things ever. When like I like say wake up and I try to... Um, respond to a text and like the amount of processing necessary in order to read, process, figure out what this person is saying, figure out what I'm gonna say, figure out how I wanna say that uh, is beyond me on most days if we're being honest. Um, And like when I hit that wall, my body just starts spasming. And the more I try to push, the worse the spasms get. Um, and the fact that like the comparison is what gets to me the most in terms of internalized ableism because I was like able-bodied for the first nine years of my life right and I still remember what that was like Um, and then my circumstance drastically shifted but I was more physically disabled than cognitively affected with my first stroke Um, because the paralysis was like clear and like readily apparent physical ramification 
but cognitively i wasn't really i mean i had migraines which were difficult and frustrating to deal with right but i had days where multiple days where i'm cognitively like clear and like running you know um like i haven't been able to read a book in like over a year um but i used to like read like 800 page books like back in those days you know and that dealing with that um minimalized ableism around that has been particularly frustrating um, i can imagine always- and also you're a writer too so like you you know you you you're like me i'm, I'm a writer and i write stuff and i like i like i like the word i like language i like to play with all that and so to, to not be able to have that i'm sure is really frustrating yeah, I haven't been able to write anything new in like, geez, I think like a little, I mean, it might be close to a year by now. Um, it's been so long because like writing something creatively is like completely beyond me. It just, it requires so much, like as much as like replying to a text is beyond me on most days, writing is so much more beyond that because you're just coming up with, you know, like something and like editing it and like working it's just like I try it and it's just completely shut down spasms. Um, and it's just, that's very frustrating. Um, but I've also gone long periods of time without being able to write. Um, and so the fact that like, since the second and third stroke in 2014, and so the fact that like this is consistent, even though the times being I'm able to write is getting longer and longer and longer, um, the fact that I've dealt with it before um, makes it, I, I guess the experience just makes it easier to deal with because I've gone through a lot of trial and error and figured out like what works best for me. Um, and so if I just continue doing that, it makes it easier than back when I was still adjusting to the limitations um, and I was trying to operate at what I used to and my body just wouldn't let me in. That was a lot more frustrating when I was new and fresh um, than it is uh, now, but it still sucks. Yeah, I and mean, I'm sure there's a grieving period of like, you know, even though you're used to it, it doesn't mean you enjoy it. Like, I'm used to my disability mm-hmm. too, but I have days where I'm like, fuck, I wish I wasn't having this today. Like, I wish disability mm-hmm. wasn't going on right now. Like, I wish this wasn't mm-hmm. as intense as it is right now. Like, I'm sure, even though you're, even though it's become something you're, quote unquote comfortable with or used to it doesn't mean you it doesn't mean you're like yeah cool it's like okay i'll deal with it yeah 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 exactly i don't think i'll ever really be comfortable with it but like i get better at dealing with it exactly tell me a little bit about um about the need to pass as able-bodied and what that's like for you so that was conditioned to me at a conditioned into me at a very very early age by every single physical therapist that I've seen, because um, like I went through a lot of physical therapy um, from age nine to about eighteen, um, and uh, it was really intense. Um, but everything that they were doing was conditioning me on how to better pass as able-bodied like all the like gate work that I did with walking and like 
instead of like walking in the way that's more comfortable for me, um, they wanted me to walk in a way that presented me as uh, um, yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, as able. Like I remember, like getting so much like flack and always like them complaining at me because my arm was always um, like um, curled up like this because um, I couldn't like extend it um, for the longest. Um, and it was so painful, uh, everything that they put me through, but it was all to get me to pass more because I noticed that like after, but like I, but, but like people always noticed regardless, you know? And so it was like, what's the point? Yeah. See, like I did all this <laughs> work. Really, yeah. Yeah. You did all this work and then people still noticed you were disabled. So like, why don't you just let me be walk the way that I want to walk or like move the way that I have to move and leave me alone. Uh-huh. And, and people would always like, you know, inquire, um, which like, I mean, that's people being people. Um, but like, also like, I feel like they were working me towards something that, cause they constantly fed into me this belief that if I worked hard enough at physical therapy, I could become able-bodied again, like I used to be. Um, and I believed that for so long and I, I worked so hard and I was just like, so frustrated because I was like, why isn't it like doing what they said I would do? Because I was like, I've done like these like exercises time and time again, but my fingers will not move in the way I want them to. Um, like I like don't have the hands to, to, to do these things, no matter how much I work at it. And it just made me feel like, you know, a failure and made me feel like there's something I'm doing wrong or like I'm not working hard enough, um, which led to quite a few injuries, honestly, um, where I ended up injuring myself by working too hard or um, working too hard like after an injury instead of resting. Now, I know there are OTs and PTs that listen to this show. I know there are. Um, and if you could if you could say anything to them about what you think the OT and PT needs to do, especially when dealing with young disabled kids and you know teaching them about disability, what do you, you what do you wish had happened in those sessions? I wish that I had met older disabled people, um, honestly, during OT and PT, um, who could um, like show me like a possible future. Um, because when I was doing OT and PT, um, I mean, like there was a lot of other people in the room, you know, um, doing their respective OT and PT, but everyone was working through stuff, you know, like I never met an older disabled person who had gone through the process and was now, um, like living, um, using what they had learned, um, I think that would be great. Um, I think if more OTs and PTs like tried better to um, just like let us guide and listen to us rather than trying to force us into doing things um, according to like what they read or what they studied, um, but that might 
Kirna, because I remember going to OPC after my second and third strokes, um, and I would like have a terrible seizure after every single session, and they just kept on telling me, oh, you got to push through, uh, you got to keep on at it, um, and like it wasn't until I went to the Mayo Clinic again, um, and they put me on like a lower grade um, exercise therapy where I started off a lot less activity wise and slowly upgraded. And that was so much more conducive um, yeah, and led to so much more um, better understanding of my body and um, the, um, better quality and it didn't, of life. It didn't force you into this thing that you're not, which is, like yeah. you're never going to be an able-bodied person anymore which is mm-hmm. you know speaking of that one of the things i love to talk about on my social media but i think the problem is that they they never want to accept that i don't think ot's and pt's want to accept that we may, may never be able-bodied anymore like that's been ingrained in every single ot or pt i've seen that like no you can't accept that because if you accept that it's failure OTs and PTs listening, you hear that? Just so if you're listening and you're an OT and a PT, play that part back again and listen to that all the time. It's okay if the person, <laughs> all right, if the person you're helping ends up staying disabled, that's fine. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you talk. One of the things that I talk a lot about on my social media is about disability grief. So how have mm-hmm. all these experiences of the strokes? and of your body changing, how has disability grief played into all that? Um, by disability grief, do you mean like grieving um, the life you used to have? I guess um, I mean all of it, like grieving the life you used to have, grieving the life you, you'll never have, gr- like grieving mm-hmm. just the changes and all the stuff you've had to go through. Like how does grief play a role there? I mean... Yeah, I think like um, there were like two main grief periods regarding disability in my life after, because um, the second and third strokes, but I'm not sure if I mentioned this, but they happened within a week of each other. And so I consider them oh, wow. to be like, uh, yeah, um, which was rough, but like I consider them to be like second and third strokes as like a thing together uh, because it wasn't like second happened and then two years later the third happened you know like they were back to back um so their effects are very much combined um but um the grieving process when i was younger when i was nine was i mean i don't think i grieved because i had to like go back and like grieve like you know things from when i was nine when i was older but the first time i went first time i got into therapy yeah, because um, I don't think I properly really processed um, a lot of that, um, which comes from being nine, you know, <laughs> um, and dealing with a lot um, that like you don't really understand fully until uh, later. Because the internalized ableism was ten million times worse back then, um, and because like at that time I saw doctors as God, you know um yeah and, and they're gonna fix you and they're gonna make you better and whatever they say is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. everything they told me to i listened to and i followed it and then they let me down and that was heartbreaking um and sobering you know um and so 
So that grieving process, I sort of had to go back to later and revisit. Um, the grieving process of strokes two and three um, was very difficult because I had gone from being um, homebound, you know, unable to go to school um, to um, like by the time strokes two and three happened, um, I was ambulatory, um, I was running, um, I was super active, um, I got a scholarship to go to university, full ride, which was amazing. Nice. Um, I was working part-time while I was there to pay the rent. Um, I was involved in a bunch of extracurriculars. I was rapping, I was writing poetry, I was doing spoken word. I was like, because like, this was my peak in terms of like energy levels. Cause like university was like the best time in my life in terms of, um, not, not like best time in my life. And like, you know, those are the best days, but like was the highest um, energy levels that I've had in my life. Um, yeah. And so I took advantage of it and I was like, I'm go, 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 because like I have this now um, and I've been like building up towards this slowly over the past nine years since I had my stroke as an 18. Um, and this is like the highest it's ever been. Um, and I don't know how long it's going to last because after my first stroke, the doctors kept on reminding me, that, oh, we don't understand what happened. Uh, from this stroke and it's very likely that you'll have another one again um, and you could have one at any time at any moment that's such, <laughs> like, a, that's, okay. that's such a terrifying like I <sighs> seriously docs can you figure out a softer way to talk about this without it being so scary I'm scared for you oh, even oh. now listening to that part of the story <laughs> <laughs> and so that was like constantly hanging over my head you know and like anytime anything wider happened health-wise, I was like, oh my God, is, 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 is it yeah. happening again? And then when it actually did happen again, I was freaking out. Cause I was like, cause like there are certain things that happen when you have a stroke. And like, those are the only times in my life that those things have happened to me. You know, like I've never felt that like pounding sledgehammer migraine ever in my life outside of the three strokes. I've never saw the face drooping and been unable to speak and like all those things combined like it's a certain sensation but like stroke survivors know what it is yeah and doctors don't because i've been misdiagnosed every single time um after the third stroke they said i had they wrote on my official diagnosis because uh, i got on my medical records it said dizziness oh god <laughs> oh wow that was your official diagnosis dizziness mm-hmm mm-hmm but yeah, the grieving process has been complex. Um, I feel like therapy helped a lot. Um, and I thank my sister for, um, what's it called? Because, um, I mean, honestly, the, the initial reason I went into therapy was to prove to the doctors that I wasn't crazy because all of them kept on telling me like, oh, like all this pain that you keep on talking about, but like, how come all of our tests don't show anything wrong with your body? And I'm like, <laughs> because it's like how many different chronic pain disorders are there that like cannot be tested for? so there's many no, like, there's so many <laughs> like, there's no test that you can run that just shows like oh this body is in pain oh this body i mean is not. to give you a completely different example i have ibs 
and I went to the, I was in the mm-hmm. hospital two weeks ago upon this recording, like two weeks ago for IBS. And I went in to have them look at me and they did an x-ray of my mm-hmm. gut and they were like, it looks fine. We don't know why it's hurting. Take a Tylenol and go home. So like, I fully understand when you said like they gave you Panadol and sent you home. I was like, yeah, been there. Like been exactly, I get it a hundred percent. So I can only imagine the frustration. Like why don't they trust us? Like, how long have you been living with this? How yeah. how, how many years of lived experience do you have? Like, this is your life. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, so we used to be a sex podcast. We're not anymore. But I wanted to ask you a sexy question. Okay. Well, a sex-related question. So you said that mm-hmm. the paralysis hit the right side of your body, right? Mm-hmm. Um, most people that masturbate tend to be right-handed so my question is as you got older and started like becoming a teenager and then started becoming a young man and then wanting to like do all wanting to do the the masturbatory stuff that we all do how did your stroke how did the paralysis play a role in that or did it um so i had to learn how to do everything with my left hand um as a result of the paralysis, because I used to be right-handed. Um, and then when the paralysis happened, um, one of my physical therapists um, was like, you ha- you was like, your right, your right side of your body is paralyzed, but the left side of your body um, is not. Um, and so you're gonna have to learn how to do everything with the left side of your body. Um, and, you know, like we started small and worked our way up. Um, from like brushing teeth, which is like, it's so difficult um, on the, the non-dominant side of your body yeah. initially. Um, but like, I didn't have a choice because my right hand would literally not move, you know? Um, and so I just um, worked at a lot of like those like exercises that they gave me with like writing. Um, and like, I had one of those like super, super uh, thick pencils that like they used to like train people. I had one of those too when I was a kid. I remember those. <laughs> yeah. I've honestly never met another person who's used one of those. Oh, I 100% had one and I loved it. It was great. I loved it. Okay. Yeah, I found them a lot of fun. Yeah. And like the, the paper too, that's like differently like spaced and like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the big like yeah. paper to, mm-hmm. put your, to put the letters on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. when so you like. I really enjoyed that. Became, and you know, so in, in terms of like yeah it, it, uh, and so i just use my uh, left hand for everything okay um i'll leave it at that uh so, <laughs> so tell me a little bit about like one of the things one of the last things you wanted to chat about was your um building of disability community can you tell me about that and what that's been like is in in finding disability community for you uh well when i was younger i honestly didn't know that many other disabled kids um which i think is like a consequence of um being physically disabled but cognitively um able um, because the majority of the disabled kids in the schools that I went to, um, were all, um, dealing with different, um, 
cognitive disabilities. And yeah. they were like shunted, shunted off into like um, special education classes. And they didn't really interact much with um, the rest of the school. Um, that's the way it was in the schools I was in. I'm not sure how it was like uh, for you. Or for no, it's pretty much, it was pretty much the same. It was pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Like your parents okay. would ha- have to fight for you to be, to be in an integrated classroom. But what, what would end up ha- happening usually is you'd be the only disabled kid in the room. Mm-hmm. At, at mm-hmm. least the only visibly exactly. disabled kid in the room. And then you wouldn't really get to interact with other disabled kids. So yeah, no, I fully get yeah. it. Yeah, so that was my experience throughout most of uh, my childhood. Um, there are a couple other disabled kids where I remember, but like none in like my class. Like I remember like this kid like three grades below who like I saw around, you know, at the playground who was disabled too. Um, but back in like school, I don't know why it is, but like you don't talk to people who are like three grades below you. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I mean, like, it's, <laughs> it's such a silly, silly hierarchy of like ridiculousness. Like, because maybe if we just talked to those kids, we'd all have all friends. It was like, like you could have friends who were like the same grade as you. The grade below was okay, um, and the grades above that meant you were cool. Um, yeah, but like but anything like two, below, two grades like, below was like no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so not many that I interacted with, honestly, um, on like a personal level. Um, I um, really started finding my disability community later on um, after um, strokes two and three uh, when I started uh, when I was like um, a lot more limited in terms of mobility um, and a lot more homebound primarily um, I just started looking for uh, people who could relate um, and like joined a couple Facebook groups but a lot of those were very hit and miss Um, a lot of them are just a lot of people just um, like venting um but like in the like a very very like aggressive and depressing way which just made me feel even more down you know yeah um like i get you know speaking your truth um but like no matter how depressed angry frustrated i've been like i've always found some way to like I mean, I always think that there's some way to find joy in the day, you know, like, even if all I do is read comics and and don't get out of bed um, for like months on end, like I read some really good comics. (laughs) And like, what are your favorite, what are your favorite comics to read? What do you like? like? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I grew up on a lot of, um, DC, Marvel, and Image primarily. Um, I'm getting into some more like IDW and some more of the indies now that I'm older. Um, but like my greatest comics are like the ultimate, you know, like power fantasy of superheroes. Um, but like, I really like superheroes that are like um, off the beaten path um, and that like explore more of like their lives, uh, their personal lives um, outside of uh the superheroics yeah and does that kind of mirror like for you 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 want to talk about like your experiences of of disability and blackness and all those things like how what makes you you is that kind of is there anything 
there that resonates or am I just like definitely definitely um because like quite a few of the characters are disabled um like um cyborg uh from uh dc is an amputee right because he's a cyborg um, yeah <laughs> and like um a lot of like like i watched this show called doom patrol um which is amazing and um a lot of like the second season is cyborg going to um like group sessions um of other amputees and um uh talking um about their trauma uh, which like i went through um a lot of um with other disabled people um but like that's like one of like the few times that like I see it on TV as like not a tragedy, you know, not like a, oh, like this poor disabled person who either dies or miraculously gets healed, you know? Yeah. Somebody who's disabled now and moves through the world differently, um, but adjusts um, and to the best of their ability. Um, like, cause like we always either die or get healed. Like yeah. <laughs> we never like just continue to be disabled. You never just um, be so there's a... actually a lot of that in comics, which I appreciate a, a little bit, but I mean, I, I seek it out. So tell me, so you went on those Facebook groups and the community was depressing. And then how, and then like, how else did you seek out community? Um, I sought out some community in person through a meetup, uh, which is like a chronic pain meetup. Um, which was honestly, um, it was, it was great um, uh, for what it did for me, um, and I'm really grateful to those folks um, because um, I was like having a lot of difficulty with like being like in pain 24/7, and nobody being able to understand that um, because nobody else who I lived with uh, or who I talked to regularly. Um, could relate um, and being surrounded by a room full of people who could relate in very varying different degrees um, like <laughs> they like gave me like some really really um, great advice which I used um, just in regards of like cutting people out of my life who um, aren't um, being a that was just stressing me out um, so I appreciated that. Um, but in terms of like the long-term disability you know, built over time, um, it's honestly been through um, just meeting people um, at random events and stuff like that. Um, and like just chit-chatting and um, discovering that we're both disabled. Um, quite a few people who I met, um, the Mayo Clinic has like a pain rehabilitation center, which I have a lot of views on for everything that they, that they spew, because um, uh, a lot of it is harmful. Um, but it did give me a wonderful community um, of like, there were like 15 of us um, all dealing with different chronic pain conditions. And we went through it uh, for three weeks. Um, and so we really bonded um, and we still talk. Um, I was actually talking to one of them uh, earlier today. Um, and it's great having people who get what it's like and get what it's like, like, you know, like in terms of like, you can, be on an up and like pro progressing and then you can be on a low and severely limited um and that can happen within a day that can happen over years and sometimes it doesn't get better it just gets different they get that uh, which i appreciate yeah and i think that's really important that like these aren't setbacks or like huge detriments they're just different 
I like how you said that because mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't mean that you're a failure if your body does something different. It just means it does something different. And I think that's important for people to recognize. I could sit and talk with you for like hours and hours more, but we've already been doing Likewise. this for we've almost already been doing this for like an hour and a half. So oh my God. Okay. I could sit and I could sit and talk with you for such a long time, but thank you so much for coming on today and telling your story a little bit and sharing a bit about your experience as a stroke survivor. Um, so, so valuable. And I think like, I would love to chat with you off the air and like, just hang Like if you want to add me to your WhatsApp group, like, let me know. It'll be fun to just like chat. Um, oh yeah. No, definitely. Definitely. No, no. I mean, that sounds great. Um, yeah, no. I'd love to. Um, and you're in Toronto, right? Yeah. Yeah, because I have a brother um, in Toronto. Because I was in Toronto on and off over the past couple of years. I've just been oh, we should have we should have connected. I mean, well, the next time you're in town, the next time it's safe to like fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll let you know because I have a nephew who I haven't met yet because uh, of COVID. Because <laughs> he, he was born literally like like um, last. He's turning two in November. Um, so he was, he born, was born like just before the just before just, the world yeah just before yeah and when he was born I was like um, flaring and doing really badly and like having seizures daily and so I wasn't able to go down to meet him uh, so I was planning on doing that last year then COVID hit um, so I'm trying to go up to see him whenever my health improves and um, things stabilize COVID wise um, and I want to make a Toronto visit to check up on all my friends there so i'll definitely hit you up okay fantastic um yeah so how do the people that are listening how does it, how can people get a hold of you how can they support you how can they follow you people can get a hold of me via my website is a one-stop shop that's mugabibienkia.com m-u-g-a-b-i-b-y enkya.com um or you can follow me on facebook my facebook page is at mugabi follow me on instagram my instagram is at mugabs that's m-u-g-a-b-s and my facebook page is m-u-g-a-b-s-b and my twitter handle is also at mugabsb that's m-u-g-a-b-s-b i've been very very sporadic on social media for the past two years because text processing has been on the fritz but um, I pop up on there every now and again, give a little update um, and reply to all messages eventually. So hit cool. me up so, or buy my book if you want to support me. Uh, yes, yes. Is on sale. Yeah. Um, you can find the, the links uh, to the bookstores that carry it um, on my website or just message me. Okay. I'll make sure that all the links are on the, on the in the show notes. And we're going to be, this is so this took two fucking years to do, but we did it. <laughs> so, I'm so I'm so glad this is actually this is finally what happened. It was a great conversation. Thank you for your no, Thank you. I, I'm I was just happy to finally sit down with you because, like I said, I could talk to you for like two more hours about all the like we have you had so much insight, and I think also it was really valuable because again, most people that we hear who are stroke survivors, we don't hear I don't hear a lot of black stroke survivors telling their stories. So thank you for that, because mm. I think we need to hear more of that, because I'm sure they're out there, but we don't hear them. So I wanted to uplift your voice, and I'm so glad I did. Definitely. Representation matters. Thank you. I mean, right? I mean, I mean, seriously, comic book people, if you need a cool black 
superhero stroke survivor. There's actually there's actually an amazing black superhero called um, Silhouette um, who is um, a crutch uh, user uh, full time. Uh, oh, nice! She's amazing. Like, and like I discovered her at like you know like nine years old. Like when, when you know like my, right, right time I was paralyzed and like like reading those comics, I was like I can be a superhero too. You know, because like a lot of people like think they can't be a superhero because they only know the mainstream superheroes who are in the movies. You know, and like <laughs> the mainstream ones are only now like ever since the Black Panther made a billion dollars, they're like, oh, we can make diverse superheroes and actually make money, you know? <laughs> I mean, I mean... Like, that was a, a wake-up call for them. Would you be down to do Black Panther 3 if they were like, let's make him disabled? Like... Oh, I would so be down for that. Definitely, like, any opportunity in my So life listen, Ryan, Ryan Coogler, listen, listen. Ryan Coogler, holla at me. Yeah, figure it out because I mean, Kaluuya, who's in Black Panther, is Ugandan too, so we got that connection. Figure it out, Black Panther people. You need some disability representation in that shit. Um, but Mugabe, I had so much fun today. Thank you so much for being so transparent and so and so forthcoming with with your stuff, and for being so bloody patient. It took us two years to record this, and but here we are. Here we are. So thank you so much for coming. Thank on. you for being patient and accommodating. No, Likewise. no, I, I love it. I love that we that we both can say, you know, I'll talk to you in seven months, but I will talk to you. So I'm glad we did. Um, mm-hmm. um, but thank you so much for coming on the show and I'll talk to you very soon. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks. All right, friends. That's another episode of Disability After Dark. From me, your disabled daddy, Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow my work, you can follow me on social media on Instagram and Twitter at andrewgerza underscore or you can follow my website www.andrewgerza.com to find out more about what I do. And of course, you can follow us on Patreon to get the show one day early and completely ad-free by going to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark or you can send us an email to disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com and let us know your ideas for an episode, for a minisode, or for a guest spot. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back to shine a bright light on your disabled stories next time. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was created, recorded, and produced by Cripple & Co. Productions and Andrew Gerza. Any and all use of materials, graphics, audio recordings, etc. cannot be used or distributed without express permission. If you would like to use an episode of the podcast or license an episode of the podcast on your website, please consider emailing Andrew Gerza and Cripple & Co. Productions at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. Copyright 2022.